Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Sylvester Inspires Belief Cast. I can't uh, tell you how excited I am, man. Today is an amazing day. We've got an amazing guest, Johnny Farmer, which we'll get to in a minute. But I do have to say, this music that you just listened to was created by a client of mine named Aaron Wood. And uh, amazing kid. He's a senior at Alta High School. And he created this. He calls it Believe, actually, mm. the, the music. And you'll be able to hear the, the rest of it at the end of this podcast. And uh, so we'll feel very fortunate that. And then, um, again, we're sponsored, again, by Veracity Networks. Uh, a good friend of mine, Drew Peterson, who's the founder of that company, uh, has we've teamed up together and we're, we're sending this out. So uh, I can't thank you guys enough. We're trending on iTunes, man. And we've had some amazing guests on. And today is no different we have Mike Haas, who's AK known, better known as Johnny Farmer. <laughs> that is correct. So right. welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. It's an honor to be here. It's a privilege. Um, congratulations on your new sponsorship with Veracity. Thank you. That's very, very cool. So you are definitely trending in the yes. right direction. So congratulations. Thanks for having me you on. Bet. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And uh, But I want to thank you for taking the time. You have an amazing story. You're doing amazing things in this life. And people need to hear this. Um, and I can't wait for them to, to hear your story. Uh, you are the founder and uh, or co-founder of Red Barn Academy. Correct. Right, which is an amazing program. It's a Is it a two-year-long program? It's a two-year uh, residential life skills program that's uh, in a farm setting. Right. Uh -huh. And I want to read something that I got off your website, I'll okay. be honest. And, but this, this really hit me hard, and I want to talk about this. Red Barn Academy is a men's residential multi-year vocational training school partnered uh, pattern, excuse me, after the Delancey Street, uh, the Delancey Street model in California. A Red Barn Academy is not a treatment center, and I love this part. Red Barn Academy is not a medical or clinical program. Medications are not allowed. And we're going to get into that and why that's so important for the success of your uh, your uh, students or residents or. I don't know, what do you call them? Well, students. Students, students okay. yeah. Um, and I, I just love that because, I th anyway, I have my opinions about medication and this and that. I think there's a time and place for them, but I also think that uh, we're over-medicated here in, in, in this world, and I love that uh, portion of your program. And we'll get, to, we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, let our listeners know a little bit about your background, where you grew up, a little bit about your family, and, and we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Well, thank you, Todd. Thanks again sure. for having me here and for the, the wonderful introduction. I, again, my name is Michael Hawes. I'm also known, especially in the recovery community, as Johnny Farmer. Right. My middle name is Johnny, and obviously I work on a farm. <laughs> and uh, as altruistic that. as it sounds, you know, we are in the business of saving lives. And, uh, you know, the first life that I really had to take a hard look at was my own life. Right. You know, I grew up in Davis County, just north of here, about 20 minutes uh, in a little uh, city called Centerville. Um, spent my whole life there when I wasn't running away from my problems. Um, there's six uh, people, kids in my family. I'm okay. the second oldest. Right. I have an older brother that's 13 months older than me. His name is David. Um, I have a little brother, CJ, little sister, Emily. Dustin, who we'll talk a little bit more right. about, Absolutely. and then my youngest little brother, Taylor. And you know, Todd, I grew up in a wonderful family, um, very, very blessed. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. You know, I played soccer, um, played golf, played little league football. 
Um, I have fond memories of my mother working with me through the scouting program. You know, right. it was mandatory right. in my family to get your Eagle Scout. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I, I should honor her in this moment because sure. she's the one who got my Eagle for me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I just I have yeah. real fond memories uh, growing up. Uh, my dad worked hard. Um, he was a disciplinarian in our household. Uh, we grew up in a very religious family. Um, you know, it was uh, an expectation, to obviously, to attend church on Sundays and, right. you know, live a certain, um, you know, standard in our household. Um, but I also remember at an early age um, that I didn't fit in. Okay. Um, I was actually looking at some pictures the other day as I was putting a PowerPoint presentation together for my students. And I found this picture. It was, uh, you know, like most of us, you know, growing up, it was our first day of uh, kindergarten. Right. Um, you know, I'm standing there on the front porch with, you know, my shirt tucked in and my new backpack and, you know, a new pair of shiny white uh, Reebok shoes. And I had this kind of puzzled look on my face. I had this kind of dejected, you know, uh -huh. hunched over a little bit and I was not smiling. And I picked up on that because my older brother was smiling. My younger sister was smiling. Um, but I remember thinking, um, you know, I just didn't quite fit in um, with my friends. I just didn't feel like I was accepted. I felt like I was a little different, right? you know, at, at a very young age. And so growing up in the community that I grew up in, um, you know, I had a lot of opportunities, um, you know, with sports, um, you know, just, you know, even with school. And, um, you know, as I grew up and, you know, went to elementary school and, you know, even on to junior high, I remember you know, as sad as it sounds, and I know I'm playing the victim here, but I was always <laughs> the last one picked. Right. I was a little chubby. Um, I wasn't as tall as my friends. Um, you know, I remember thinking that, you know, I was younger for my, for my right. class. Um, you know, I was a late bloomer. Um, yeah. I didn't hit puberty till later on in life. Sure. I remember all my friends, you know, manly men in high school that were showering and shaving and, <laughs> you know, and I, I felt out yeah. of place. I know right. I just didn't feel like I fit in very well. And yeah. so, that's a theme that, uh, you know, was consistent, Throughout. you know, through, through my upbringing. Did your family know about that? Did your, I mean, were you, did your parents pick up on that you were struggling, not fitting in, or is this something you kind of just kept to yourself? I or? kept that to myself. I think that uh -huh. was one of the first secrets that I kept. Right. Um, you know, my family was a, like a very typical family here in our community. You know, we didn't talk about our problems. We didn't talk about our shortcomings. Um, right. You know, my dad was very positive and optimistic and a real go-getter and, you know, very right. successful. Um, and so, you know, he, he implemented really, um, kind of a mindset in our family, um, that there was no other option than to be successful and to be number one and, you know, get straight A's in school and, you know, excel right. because that's what he did. You know, he's very sure. talented, you know, in every yeah. aspect of his life. And so, you know, I, I felt like I lived under the burden of potential, Right. Yeah. And uh, and I remember thinking to myself, I wasn't really holding back, but I could never quite live up. And this was a part of my belief system and the narrative that I had in my own life. That story that I told myself is I just wasn't good enough. I just right. couldn't quite keep up. I, right. You know, I always looked at the half glass empty and that was just my mindset. And I right. think I was trying to protect myself. Um, from really feeling bad about myself, just saying, you know, I'm just not good enough. And, 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 and you know, that's just how you're going to live your life. Yeah. It's amazing how that plays such a, a dramatic, uh, you know, uh, thing in our life when, because belief dictates the way we behave. Right. 
right? And so, and most kids and on different levels believe that they're not good enough when we're going through that transition of junior high, trying to find who we are. Right. But some kids, it affects a lot more deeper. And it sounds like that's kind of where you fit in, in the sense of that is, man, it was a, this deep entrenched, man, I'm just not good enough. I don't fit in, you know, what's wrong with me kind of thing. Is that yeah. fair? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, fair assessment, you know, didn't have a girlfriend, was scared to talk to girls, <laughs> you know, and, you Which know. Which is, I'm laughing and here's why I'm laughing because, like people who know you now, and I've met you recently, which yeah. has been great, by the way, is you're a very powerful presence. Thank you. Like you, you know, you just, you, I don't know how to explain it, but you, energy you can't fake, right? right? Light you can't fake. And it introduces itself when you walk into the room. Thank you. You command the room, man. And, and so it's, that's why I'm chuckling. <laughs> like how you're saying you were, but to see you today, it's, it's, it's awesome. And we'll get to that, how that transition came in, but yeah. Well, I thank love that. you. Yeah, absolutely. So then as I, you know, fast forward a little bit through high school, um, you know, I, I was faced with really, you know, kind of a crossroads in my life because, you know, where I grew up in the community that I grew up in, that's when, you know, the drugs and the alcohol and, mm -hmm. you know, some of the curiosities started to set in. And I wanted to be like my friends that were the athletes that played on the basketball team and right. the football team. And I remember, you know, one evening it was after a basketball game where, you know, a bunch of us got together and, um, and, you know, one of my buddies, you know, he pulled out uh, a bottle of Everclear and a bottle of uh, Sunny Delight and he mixed the two together. Mm -hmm. And I remember when he passed that around and that overwhelming feeling to fit in just overtook me. And yeah. as soon as I took a pull off of that Everclear and Sunny Delight, um, you know, all my fears went away. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, like it was yesterday that, oh my gosh, we're going to do this a lot yeah. because now I'm taller. Now I'm better looking. Now I'll go talk to girls. It was kind of like, all right, now I can come out and play. Right. You know, and some people say they like the effects produced by alcohol and drugs. I mean, I like banana pudding. I loved <laughs> alcohol. I loved right. the effects because yeah. all those fears went away from me. Yeah. And all of a sudden I started to feel a little bit better about myself and, yeah. You know, and, and that's, I felt like I had arrived. Yeah. And not, you, you say how much you loved it, but I also would add, based on what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, here you are with your group of friends and it comes around to you. It's your turn to take a drink. Yeah. Not only did it taste good to you and the fears went away, but in that moment, you are now accepted exactly. by the group. Yep. And that's probably even more intoxicating than the alcohol itself. Correct. I fit in now. Mm -hmm. I'm one of you. Yeah, there was a connection. Yep. And that's all I ever wanted yep. was to be accepted, to feel connected. Exactly. And that moment really uh, stands out in my mind as really a critical yeah. kind of a key moment in my well, life. Yeah, and it also forms this belief that alcohol helps me connect. Yep. And therefore, belief dictates behavior. So what are you going to start doing from that yeah. point? I'm going to start throwing back some alcohol. Right. Because I'm going to keep connecting because I love this. Right. Anyway. And you're, and you're spot on. And that really resonates with me. And so therein lies the conflict in my life because, okay. you know, in my family, it's unacceptable right. um, to drink and use any type of mind altering substances. Right. And so now, you know, there was a pattern and, and really I have to let the listeners know that my life was really kind of a mess before I even found alcohol. And what I mean by that is at an early sure. age, in order to live up to the expectations that I felt I had on myself was, you know, I started cheating in high school. 
I started okay. cheating as young. I remember in elementary school cheating on exams. Oh. I mean, I remember one uh -huh. situation. This was obviously, and this dates me way before <laughs> cell phones. But uh, you know, there I had a math test coming up that I was feeling not so so good about, and I remember going down to the payphone and calling the front office from the payphone to have uh, this particular teacher show up to the front office. And then my buddy went in, grabbed the exam, and stole the exam so we could get the answers prior to the test. And so at an early age, um, because you know there were no consequences for those right. actions or for those behaviors, I thought, well, you know, the rules don't apply to me. Right. And then I would get validation from friends and family for excelling in school. And uh, you know that that's something that is an important part of my story as well because you know I felt like you know that this terminal uniqueness that you know don't you know who I am you right. know kind of attitude and mindset was yeah. something that I could also carry through with drinking and you know later on when I found drugs and so you know I can't blame drugs and alcohol on my life being a mess you know I didn't have a solid foundation of you know core principles right. or mores that I call them that right. I believed in um, and so I was just, I was kind of floating around and doing whatever I could to be accepted, whether it was to cheat on an exam or, you know, drink alcohol and do drugs with my friends. Wow. And so as my story continues, the conflict that I felt, um, by not having a value centered life or living with integrity, um, was very, very difficult. And so the remedy for me was drink more alcohol, right? right? right. Make that go away. Yeah. And so I felt very conflicted and I started to have to wear that mask or put on that, you know, that that front or facade, which is very, very taxing, you know, oh, yeah. to live a double life, For and sure. drink it's and exhausting. party on the yeah. weekends at night, come home, mm -hmm. go to church on Sundays, pretend like I'm going to be this, you know, you know, whatever I had, you know, and this ideal in my mind or what my family, what I thought my family wanted me to be, you know, was was very, very troubling. And I think that's what brought on this you know depression and anxiety and just you know not being able to be authentic um, and really not knowing who i was right and and that was difficult as i moved through high school and then you know um and then moving into college sure um, because when i went to college is that's when you know i went up to utah state actually went up there on a golf scholarship Okay. And um, that's when I was uh, really introduced to the whole party scene with the fraternities and the sororities. And I, the curiosity really set in because now I'm away from home, you know, so I don't have to check in. And now I'm at this school and college and, you know, now I can, you know, go crazy. And Do whatever you again, want. there's no consequences, yeah. right? Well, going back real quick, let's go back a little bit. Did your parents know uh, that you were drinking and partying? Did, did they catch on to that or did you kind of not try to extent. keep that hidden? Okay. Not the extent. I think once and, you know, once or twice I was confronted by my parents. But, you right. know, at this point, you know, because, you know, I grew up in a family where religion was the predominant, you know, topic in our family. Right. And uh, my dad was a bishop, and I thought to myself, you know, there's no way. Not only am I not going to tell my dad, but I can't tell the bishop what's going on, right? So that was you a were double. really stuck. Yeah, so I was stuck there. So it was like, are you drinking? Yeah. No, hell no, I'm not drinking. I would never right. do that, right? right? Because I didn't want to let my dad down. I didn't want to sure. let my family down. And I knew deep down inside that it was not... It wasn't right. I knew that. In my right. core, I knew it wasn't right. Yeah. And then to have to cover up with lies and deceit and everything else that went along with that, um, you know, I knew the difference between right and wrong. Right. And I started to compromise early on. And, you know, that just continued all the way through high school up to college. Wow. 
So, uh, so you head up to Utah State. And went up to Utah was State. Was it a golf scholarship? Yeah, so I went up okay. there on a golf scholarship. Yeah, yeah okay. I was one of those wimpy golfers that uh, wore khakis <laughs> and a polo, a polo shirt. Because you look more like a football player right now. So <laughs> yeah. That's why I was like, did you say golf scholarship? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny because my buddies used to make fun of me for playing golf. Uh-huh. And now all of my buddies that are fo- you know, ex-football players and basketball players that are all broken down, they're the ones calling me saying, hey, Mike, will you give me a golf lesson? I got my boss coming to town. <laughs> right. And my response is, no, go pound sand, bro. I'm not going to help you, you know? So, and that's probably part of who I even am today is trying to compensate for, you know, being, you know, who I grew up as and and not really liking, not not really wanting to be that person anymore. But it's important for the listeners to know that when I went up to Utah State, my whole game plan was was to go out and serve a Mormon mission, an LDS mission. Uh And so I had the opportunity to go to school for a year to play golf up at Utah State. And I still, and that's where the, you know, kind of where I, I was living this double life was I, I, I enjoyed partying. I enjoyed being with the fraternities and the sororities, but I still in the back of my mind knew I had to go on this mission. I knew I could dabble in, you know, this, this lifestyle to a certain extent, but I couldn't cross over too far because heaven forbid, I let my family down, you know, that was really what was always weighing on me. And so what was interesting about going on a mission, you know, I, uh, I actually went on a Mormon mission when I was 19 years old. I went to, uh, to Ecuador, to Guayaquil. Okay. I went into the Missionary Training Center, which is uh, down here in Provo, um, on my uh, 19th birthday. Okay. So I actually checked in uh, down there for a couple of months. Um, didn't have a clue what I was getting myself into, <laughs> right. but all my friends were doing it, right? So, yeah. you know, I'm a sucker for peer pressure. And so, of course, you know, you I fit in. I want to fit in. You know, I don't want to be the guy that stays back. And so, you know, and, and what's interesting, Todd, about that experience that I had um, is, you know, I didn't use any mind altering substances or drink when I was this mm-hmm. Mormon missionary. So the connection that I've made is I have this void in my life that now instead of filling it with drugs and alcohol, I'm now filling it with service work. Right. I'm now filling it with this connection piece because now I'm just connected to something bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. And being a missionary, you know, in South America, mm-hmm. you know, I kept all the rules. I, you know, I followed them with exactctness, partly because I didn't want to die down there. Right. And my leaders told me that if I wasn't obedient, then I, you know, wouldn't be protected. But at the same time, I, I felt complete. I felt safe. I felt like there was a purpose in my life. And what I was doing was it wasn't so much about the message that I was sharing. It was um, that I was serving the people of South America. I had this outward mindset. I yeah. was thinking of other people as opposed to myself. Because, see, my problem is, is I get too much of me on me. Right. That's my problem. Right. And so when I start thinking about me and how am I going to get what I need to get through the day, I become so self-absorbed and consumed with myself that, yeah. you know, that's what distance is myself from God and from you and other people around me. And so that outward mindset that I developed and that service is what really had a major impact on me as a, as a missionary. And to be honest, it was, it was, and I know you hear this and it's cliche, but the greatest two years of my life. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. Not only did I learn to work hard and have discipline, right. I learned a foreign language. Um, you know, it was it was it was amazing. Well, it's interesting you say the work hard and discipline, which I know are some of the characteristics and principles that you teach at the Red Barn Academy. Yes, you know, which we'll get into here in a minute. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Like when we give a, give of ourselves, give it away, serve others. Like you just you're, you're 
forgetting who you are per se, but you actually learn who you are when you do that. Right. It's kind of a catch-22 thing. Well, I call it a recovery paradox. Okay. I call it enlightened self-interest, right? I like that. I mean, there's more to it than that, but it's along the lines of in order for me to get what I need, peace, serenity, joy in my life, I first need to help you get that. And then it comes back to me for sure. Yeah, and we that. say that, but then to experience it, I mean, it gives me chills because yeah, that's sure. that's what my life is about today. So people yeah. say, you've got this outward mindset. And I said, no, really, I'm a selfish, self-centered son of a bitch. <laughs> but I know that if I help you, <laughs> Yeah. I know it's going to come back to me. Yeah. I know I'm going to sleep better. I know my relationships are going to get better. I'm yeah. going to be happy. Yeah. I'm going to be able to look at the guy in the mirror and be okay with who I see. Right. So really, at the end of the day, it still is kind of all about me. Well, it is. <laughs> you, know? you know, that's true. And this is a tough thing for people to like swallow. Like It's almost a selfish mm-hmm. act when we do something for someone else because it is benefiting us. Right. Like you said, all those all those blessings you receive by doing it. Yeah. Who doesn't want that? Right. So yeah, I want more of that, so I'm going to do more of this. Yeah. So what I have to do today, Todd, is I have to ask myself, what are my motives here? Can I engage in this selfless act and not expect anything in return? What is, you know, yeah. really the motives? Um, sure. What is my, what are my intentions right now? Um, that's what I'm constantly, I ask myself that on a daily, you know, what are my motives today? Are they pure? Are they in line with what right. my principles are and what I teach my students at Red sure, Barn Academy? Sure. And so that's the battle, the internal yeah. battle that I have on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, well, we're going to get to that, but I also want to, let's talk about, because, you know, you come home from a mission, Yep. you know, best two years of your life, everything seemed great, but then things take a turn. So let's talk a little bit about that and kind of what led up to what you call, is it your new life date? Is that yeah. My new life date. Yeah. So let's kind of get to that. And I love that by okay. the way. And matter of fact, I'm going to steal that from you. I'm going to say it on, on air here. I'm stealing it because I'm going to tell my clients to start saying that. I love it. Good. Well, I stole anyway. it from someone else. Okay. It's like anything in recovery or, you know, it's it's yeah. never a new idea, right? right? I right. stole it from someone but else. But I love it. But yeah, so I'll, 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 I'll speed through this real quick. So I come back from my mission. Fall back into my old ways. There's not some. There's not the structure there. Right. I like I said. I'm you know, I'm guilty of uh, peer pressure, um, <laughs> but the 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 moment in my life that really altered the course and the trajectory of the rest of my life was when I came back from my mission. I went into uh, the off season. And my golf game wasn't really good. I was struggling. I mean, I didn't touch a golf club for two years down in South America, obviously. Right. And I got in there with um, the football players and basketball players, and I started lifting weights. And I wasn't doing it properly. And um, I was uh, I was lifting, and I herniated my back, the discs in my oh, back, okay. the L4, L5 discs right. in my back. So now I'm in pain. And I remember going, because I was in so much pain, to the team doctor um, in the athletic department, and he prescribed me my first prescription of okay. pain medication and narcotics. Right. And it wasn't so much the pain pills that he gave me, but it's what he said to me. He said, Mike, he says, you have a legitimate injury. He said, you're welcome to come see me anytime you're in pain, but this is going to be our secret. So keep this between you and I. Oh, wow. So again, goes back to keeping secrets. Secrets. And man. what I've secrets learned, about, kill, they do. And I tell my students all the time, we're only as sick as our secrets. Yeah. So again, so that started me on a whole nother path. And, you know, I'm drinking a little bit, but not as much. But now I'm starting to use pain medications daily. Um, I make the connection that, you know, when life is tough and I'm struggling at school, I take a pain take pill. A when pill. life is good, I'm taking a pain pill. Then I'm mixing muscle relaxers in. 
And, and this goes on for the rest of my, you know, college experience and wow. I'm building up a tolerance. And before sure. I know it, I don't really understand what drug addiction is and, you know, the physical addiction and the mental obsession and all the things that go along with that. But, you know, as I start to move through college and graduate from college, um, you know, I graduate with a marketing degree and I, and I know right. my family knows that I'm not in a good place because someone who takes the amount of pain meds, you know, 30 right. or 40 pills a day, you know, you're sweating, you're paced. I mean, you're yeah. throwing up, you're you, just, you don't, yeah, you're not yeah. out, you don't look good. So I graduate from college and the first job that I get is a pharmaceutical sales rep job. Oh, wow. You know, and like I said, that's a great job for a drug addict, right? Oh, absolutely. So I'm in drug closets and, you know, I'm waiting for signatures because I'm dropping off samples and I'm reading package inserts and it said things like, don't crush this, so I'd crush it. Don't mix this with this, I would so mix, mix it. it. <laughs> and then, you know, doctors would say, yeah. we lock up our narcotics. No, I could always find narcotics whenever right. I needed to. Right. Now, right. My addiction and dependence on this is becoming so intense that now I'm starting to call in my own prescriptions because now I've got DEA numbers wow. because I'm a drug rep and I've got over 200 DEA numbers. So now I start doctor shopping. I call in, um, you know, I get arrested for the first time, you know, walking into a pharmacy um, because I'd wow. called in my own prescription in the middle of the day. Um, I walk into a pharmacy and um, they take my ID and they say, Mr. Hawes, just wait here for a second. I turn around. There's two police officers there. Arrest me. Handcuffs. You talk about the walk of shame. They walk wow. me out of that pharmacy. Because it's in the back of the store. Yep. Right? Yep. You got to walk, walk all, all the way, all the way to the front. Yep. Oh, wow. And it says right there on every pharmacy, it is a federal crime. So that's where I picked up my first felony was wow. falsifying, you know, controlled substances. And wow. so that really continued. And, you know, shortly after college, um, I got married. Um, you know, I started that off on a lie and with major secrets that only lasted for a few years. Um, and an yeah. important part of that, um, you know, part of my story uh -huh. is, you know, I was about three, three and a half years into my marriage and uh, my ex-wife confronted me. And said, you know, I know you got a problem here. You know, you need to do something about it. And of course, I rationalized, justified, downplay. Right. I got an injury. I've got an MRI that shows that I'm hurt. Yeah, here's the proof. Exactly. And we were living at the time. Actually, we'd moved out of Utah when I graduated from Utah State and moved down to Henderson, Nevada. So we're living just outside of Las Vegas. And it, I remember it was the first week of May. Um, but my ex-wife said to me, hey, we're going to go back and visit your parents um, because my mom, my mother and father both celebrate their birthdays the first uh, week of May. And we come into their house and we walk into the, the front room and my whole family's sitting there and they've all got uh, letters. And here we go. Here we go. Right. Yeah. An intervention. Yep. My mom's in tears. You know, I'm going to lose my son. And it goes on and on and on. And immediately I just get pissed. I'm <laughs> yeah. pissed at my ex-wife. I'm sure. pissed at my family. You guys don't understand you know, whatever. And so begrudgingly, I go off to my first uh, treatment center, my third, my first 30 day facility. Right. I call them high price jitter joints. I went in there for 30 days. <laughs> I, you shake like a leaf, right? They give you acupuncture detox. They're sticking needles in your ears. They're massaging your feet. They got a beautiful <laughs> pool, you know, 800 thread count sheets. I'm thinking, yeah, this isn't bad, right? But I do remember thinking to myself, because that's when I was introduced to the right. 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're uh -huh. sitting on the wall right. and it, the step one where our lives are, you know, we're, we're powerless and our lives are unmanageable. And I remember thinking, OK, my life may be a little powerless over these these drugs and alcohol, but it's certainly not unmanageable. I've got the wife. I've right. got the car. I've got the job. Got a job. Now, you you need those steps. I don't need those steps. Right. Right. But I do remember because people will say, well, Mike, well, then treatment didn't work for you. And I said, no, no, no. 
it planted the seed. And I always, in the back of sure. my mind, thought if it gets bad enough again, I can always come to a place like this. Right. Right. So it planted the seed that there was a solution, that there was a different life that I could live if this drinking and drug thing didn't work out for me. Right. I come back from Arizona. That's where I went to treatment and checked into Highland Ridge Hospital. I uh, did their IOP there. I think it was like a six week program. And then I stayed sober for six weeks after that. And then I was right back on the pills again. Right. I wasn't active in the recovery community. I didn't find a connection. Um, I was still thinking I was different that, you know, this, I had a legitimate problem an excuse. And then my wife came to me, my ex-wife and said, listen, it's either me or the drugs. Yeah. Easy decision for me. I choose the drugs. Wow. So we got divorced. Wow. So again, now I'm starting to fall short based on my belief system and the narrative now that's continuing in my life and letting my family down, letting myself down. And really over the next, I'd say, so that would have been about 2005 okay. um, till 2010 was really just a blur because at that point I had financial freedom. I was single. Um, I had moved back to, from Vegas to Utah at that point. I was traveling a lot around the world. I got into a lot of club drugs. I was into the ecstasy, cocaine. Yeah. Um, but the one common substance that I put into my body every single day was alcohol. That was yeah. something that was very common for me. Sure. You know, some people wake up and have cream and sugar in their coffee. I was mixing tequila yeah. in my coffee. That was just part of who I was. Yeah. Then fast forward to 2010, and I found myself in a situation to where um, uh, really I was conducting more of kind of my own harm reduction in my life. I was taking so many pills that I had an acquaintance uh, introduce me to methadone. And uh, he said to me, he says, you know, and uh, he says this, you know, you're not necessarily going to get high off of it, but uh, you're not going to get sick anymore because I couldn't take enough medication um, I was too scared at that point to put a needle in my arm. My friends were doing it. Right. I had family members right. that were involved and, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. And so he introduced me to uh, these wafers, these uh, methadone wafers where you could break them up in quarters. And I could take a quarter of it in the morning so I didn't get sick. The diarrhea, the cramping, the shakes, everything would go away. And then I'd take a quarter of it um, in, the, uh, in, the in the evening to get me yeah. through the night. And I did that for almost two years, Todd. Really? And uh, I wasn't going to a clinic. I wasn't going to a counselor. It was my own form of medication-assisted <laughs> therapy, right, right? Prescribed by me because, right, I'm the boss Johnny. of my life. Yeah, Johnny <laughs> Farmer at his best. And, um, and then really, I remember uh, one day I was looking for my dealer. I couldn't get a hold of him, and he was just here in the avenues. And so I drove up by his house, and I ran into one of his neighbors. And he said, you didn't hear? And I said, no, what happened? And he said, uh, you know, he got popped on a, on a violation of probation or a parole, parole violation, and he's, he's back in prison. Wow. And my heart sank because now there goes my supply. Now what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Yeah. So what do I always do when things get tough? I run. So I slowly started to detox. I called my older brother. I'd already been to uni once, so now I'm going back to uni again. At this point, now they're giving me a discount because I'm on the, you know, the retread plan. Retread plan. So yeah. I'm going back <laughs> into uni, and now I'm detoxing off of methadone. And that was an experience that I'll never forget. It was one thing to detox off some of the other medications. Sure. But that process of getting off methadone was excruciating. I mean, it lasted for weeks for me. Yeah, I've heard stories. That Couldn't just sleep. Brutal. Bones were aching. And I only spent about four or five days in, uh, in uni. And then my family visited me and said, listen, we're going to get you some help. And we got the place that you need to go to. And again, begrudgingly, I felt like they were yeah, intervening like, on me. Right. They sent me to a place in Baton Rouge, Louisiana called St. Christopher's. 
Mm. A therapeutic community. I call it my redneck rehab experience. <laughs> it was a boy's ranch. It right. was based on discipline, hard work, changing behaviors. Yeah. And I was pissed and I hated it. <laughs> and I only lasted there 30 days. Really? And I said, okay. I'm done. I'm 30 days clean. I got this. The one, the only difference when I came back from Baton Rouge was now I was done being a drug addict. I didn't touch drugs after that point, but I picked up the alcohol and just yeah. continued with the alcohol because I needed something, right? I just thought now, you know, I can be an alcoholic. I can control my drinking. Yeah, you had this belief you still needed something to be okay. Exactly. Yeah. And so then that continued from 2010 till about 2012. And there were two key events that happened in my life um, okay. in 2011. Um, I found myself in a little bit of trouble. Now I'm getting DUIs. Now I'm going to jail. And, uh, I had a really, really close friend who was from Argentina and, uh, and, and he invited me, he says, why don't you come down to Argentina for a little while, come down, get away, check out, come down here and hang right. with me. And so I put together enough money, uh, to just buy a one way ticket to go to Argentina. And I had no plans of coming back really? to the United States. And I get down there and you can imagine, um, sure. you know, it went to a whole nother level with the drugs and the alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the story around, you know, his name is Carlos Simonetti. Um, you know, I lasted down there for about a year and he actually uh, died from a drug overdose. Mm. So that was the wow. real first kind of impact of someone close to me that I lost. And then shortly after when I came back from uh, Argentina, is when I lost my little brother, Dustin Haas, on June 29th, 2012. And how how soon was that after? Just a couple of months after. Just a after. couple months after. Yeah, just a couple so of months after. let's talk about that and how that affected you. I mean, I know that was a tough time, obviously. Yeah, you know, Todd, it's, it's still tough for me to talk about my little brother because it brings up some guilt and shame in my life, being mm -hmm. his older brother, not being there to support him. Um, he was actually uh, in recovery. He was living in a local sober living home okay. here in Salt Lake City uh, when we lost Dustin. Um, my new life date is about three weeks after Dustin passed away. Um, but what's crazy about addiction and this unhealthy lifestyle, these unhealthy behaviors, was when we lost Dustin, uh, my mother and father actually went out to go visit Dustin the night before he passed and my mom visited him at this uh, facility he was living at. And she said to my dad, she says, you know, something just doesn't feel right here. I don't know if it's the lack mm -hmm. of structure or that there's 10 guys living in a little room. Right. Um, but it just didn't feel right. And then we got the phone call the next day that there were three of them that went out that night. All three of them overdosed. Um, when one of the guys came to, he saw what had happened and he fled and ran. Really? The second guy came to, tried to revive my little brother. Narcan wasn't available, um, you know, so they couldn't get their hands on that. And, uh, and so, yeah, we lost him. We lost him that morning of June 29th, 2012. And how old's Dustin? He was 21 he's years 21. old uh -huh, when yeah. we lost him. And, and really the sad thing is, is for me, I wanted to, to help and be there, but based on where I was at, you know, I just, you know, that there was only so much that I could do. And I remember calling my dad after we lost us. And I said to him, I said, dad, let me help with the funeral services. Let me help. You know, we didn't have right. any burial plots. 
And so I got on KSL. I found some burial plots that just there at the uh, the Lakeview Cemetery up by the Bountiful yeah. Temple. Uh-huh. And I met a guy up there, and I bought 10 burial plots, and I'm coming down off the hill. And you have to remember, this is only a day or two after we lost Dustin. I'm coming down off the hill, and it's about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm driving from Bountiful up to Farmington where my family lives. And um, I roll my car on the freeway right before the center of Alexit. Wow. My car rolls on the freeway. It ends up in the ditch between I-15 and the frontage road, and it's on its side. And I remember rolling the window down and climbing out and dusting myself off, and I thought to myself, oh, shit, I got a bottle of vodka in there. So I climb back in my car to grab that bottle of vodka, toss it out in the weeds. As soon as I get out of my car again, there's a police officer that had stopped. That watched you do that the That watched thing. me do the whole thing. So he shows up. He says, have you been drinking? Absolutely not. I mean, it's 10 in the morning. Normal people don't start drinking at 10 in the morning. (laughs) And he says, you need to surrender to a a field sobriety test. I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. They had an ambulance there. I was a little dizzy. So they put me in the ambulance and they uh, actually, I said, you guys need a warrant before you take my blood. And sure enough, they had a fax machine back, you know, then (laughs) in the, and, and they, produced and said no here's our warrant and they drew my blood right then and there wow they take me up to the hospital i kind of come to i'm handcuffed to the hospital bed i've got two police officers standing outside of my uh, hospital room and uh and then they uh they take me to jail and so i do what i always do i call my brother ask him to bail me out and this time instead of taking me home he takes me down to the red barn my dad's down at the red barn sitting there in the front room right and uh, I said, David, please don't take me. I'm not ready to see dad. I don't need to see the family. Let me just, you know, wrap my head around yeah. this and put a game plan together. She said, no, no, we're going to go down and see dad. So I walk into the red barn. My dad's sitting there in his chair and he's just in tears. Sure. And he says, Michael, he says, we just lost your little brother, Dustin. He said, are we going to lose you too? Yeah. And that's where it hit me, Todd. That's where wow. I just lost it. And I completely, we talk about those moments where our lives are saved by inches and seconds, literally. Yeah. I surrendered. Yeah. I completely just gave up and said, dad, I need some help. Now, the difference this time, the way my dad handled this situation, instead of telling me what to do, motivational interviewing, he sure. said, what do <laughs> you need? How can we as a family support you? Right. So now it's my idea. Yeah. And as I'm sitting there, I had already been kind of planning, right. you know, putting together a game plan of what I was going to do. And I said, you know, dad, I'd really like to go to this facility. I'd like to get out of town. It's called Hazelden, which is now Hazelden yeah. Betty Ford. Sure. Sure. I said, I'd really like to go there. He says, let me check it out. He says, give me a couple of hours. And, uh, he says, I'll get in touch with you and, uh, we'll, we'll give you some feedback within about a half hour. He calls me. He says, Mike, he says, let's get you some help. Um, let's, you know, get you to where you need to be. Um, and the family will support you a hundred percent. Right. So now this is my idea. Now I've got to own this. And that was a big pivotal moment in my life because now I'm thinking, well, shoot, I've got to step up now. I've got to, you know, I got to own this decision. Right. And so then I go off to, to rehab again. Right. And I do the drill. And at the end of 30 days, I'm right back where I was saying, man, I got this. I need to go home. And then a counselor comes to me and says, no, you need to continue. And I had that internal conflict and battle again with myself. And I surrendered. I said, all right, cool. And then at the end of 60 days, 
my counselor said, we're going to send you back to Utah. You're going to go to sober living. I said, no, I'm not ready to go yet. My, my roommate gets, he's a doctor and he gets to stay 90 days. I want to stay 90 days, right? I always want what I can't have, right? <laughs> so then I stay 90 days right. and then I come back home to Utah mm-hmm. and I go down to a place here in Salt Lake City called Project Recovery that's no longer sure. around. Right. And I go check in there and I say, I'm going to be here 30 days. And they said, no, you're not. The minimum stay here is 90 days. I'm like, oh shit, again, here we go. <laughs> Right, I got shit to do. I mean, at this point, now I got to start making amends. So right, you went straight from Hazelden to to, pro- there. to Project Recovery. So ninety, there. and then now another ninety, and now coming. another ninety. Right. Okay. So I'm there ninety days, and I'm not ready to go at the end of ninety days. So I end up staying there six months, and then at the really? end of six months, okay. the owners came to me and says, "Mike, we'd like you to stay on to be a recovery coach." So then I stayed another six and months, you're like- and I just started to accept, 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 realizing that I didn't have this figured out. And so I remember some of my acquaintances from rehab saying, Mike, you're still sober. What are you doing? I said, well, damn, I'm still in rehab. I still have structure around me. Yeah. I'm still drug testing. I'm still sure. going to IOP. I'm now getting connected to the community here in Salt Lake. Yeah, you're I'm, being accountable to exactly. people. Exactly. Yeah. And so for me, that was very, very instrumental to get me onto the path. And that was a game changer for me because yeah, now wow. I'm putting together you know, a structured program and with support around me that's going on almost two years. Yeah. And so that's something that really stayed with me stay, yeah. with length of time. There's got to be length of time. Yeah. You know, and so and I jokingly say this, Todd, but the best thing that I did early on in my recovery was fire myself as CEO of my life. Because if you would have followed me around right. and you would have seen the jobs that I lost and the toes of the people that I stepped on, mm-hmm. you would have said, whoever's running that guy's life <laughs> is out to destroy him. Right. And so I always say that, you know, if you got a good idea, contact me. If you got a great idea, get your ass over to my house because my great ideas usually ended up with me behind bars or at least in handcuffs. Yeah. So that for me was really the game changer. And, and, and then from that point on, like any good recovering drug addict, I want to go out and save the world. So now I got to go get a college degree to become a social worker. (laughs) I go up to the university of Utah I sign up for the SUDC program, for the Substance Use Disorder program, mm-hmm. because now it's still all about me, right? Even though I'm sober, <laughs> now I got to go out and save everyone else. Right. And that's when we really started to talk about Red Barn okay. and Red Barn Farms. And my dad and myself and my family, we got together and we said, what can we do here yeah. in our community to give back? And we didn't have a clue. But what we did realize, Todd, is that we had a safe place where we could have meetings and support groups. And we found that it was very cathartic for us to start telling our story. So we started to invite people from the community. Um, We had Al-Anon meetings in there. We had AA meetings. Um, I contacted my buddy Blue Robinson to start hosting Addict to Athlete up there. I got certified in smart recovery. So we started having smart recovery groups. Um, I finished my uh, SUD-C program at the University of Utah, and then I got a job up at Davis Behavioral Health working as a case manager. So we started doing recovery groups up there. And so we started this whole process of really trying to figure out our identity and what we were all about. And there was a key moment when I went back to school that really kind of, you know, stamped, you know, the path that we're on today. And we were reading about therapeutic communities. And there was a little paragraph in my social work textbook that talked about Delancey Street Foundation. Mm. Two-year or multi-year program. Right. Life skills, work, discipline. It's not about the drugs. It's not about the alcohol. It's about changing behavior. Right. It's about integrity. 
It's about hard work. And that one little paragraph, it was almost like, this is exactly why I came back to school. That was one of those aha moments. And I remember calling my dad saying, dad, we got to go out there. We got to go check this place out. Can I say something too, that just, I've made this connection in my head. So you grew up with a dad who was exactly what you just said. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> and here you were rebelling against it. <laughs> yeah. Though, I mean, I'm tearing up as I'm yeah. saying this because, wow, what? <laughs> and you were hearing this message as a young kid, but you, again, you had that belief yeah. you didn't fit in. But now it's come full circle here. Yep. You read this little paragraph and it's almost like a slap in the face like, hey, wake up, dude. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here it is. Yeah. It's been here the whole time, but now you're really hearing it for the first time. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I just I just put that in No, my head. thank you. And thank you for pointing that out and sharing that. Man. Because if you would have said, Mike, if you could design <laughs> your family today, the perfect family that you could have grown up in, it's the family that I had. Right. My dad, my mom, yeah. my siblings, all the love, support. I mean, I wish I had a better excuse for being a recovering drug addict, you know, that I was molested or that I was right. abandoned. I mean, my mom forgot me you know, one time from soccer practice and now I've got abandonment issues. <laughs> right. right. And yeah. I'm still chewing on that at 42 years old. <laughs> right. Like get over it. Yeah. Right. Right. But it is, it's the, it's the integrity piece. It's the accountability. It's the what? honesty. It's the hard work. It's, you know, and, and that's the byproduct. And what I teach the students at Red Barn Academy is it's not about the drinking. It's not about those unhealthy behaviors. Yeah. It's about the relationships. Mm-hmm. It's the relationship with yourself. Right. It's the relationship with God or some universal conscience and the relationship with the people around you. Because see, today, really the litmus test that I run on myself, if I want to mm-hmm. gauge my relationship with God and my spiritual connection today, all I have to do is look around and look at the people that are around me. And how close am I with my family? Right. Am I at odds with them? You know, because, and I jokingly say this is, you know, my family, you know, they're the ones who push my buttons because they're the ones who (laughs) installed them. Right. So if I want to test my spiritual condition, I go hang with my family. And if I'm not close to my family, then it's a good indication that I'm not close to God. Exactly. And that's how I gauge it today. And so this path that I'm on with my father and my family right now is such an amazing blessing in my life because I, there was a point in my life, Todd, where I thought I would never speak to my father again. Wow. Now I talk to him every single day. Yeah. You know, he's has a seat at my table. We, you know, we, we teach our students to, to set goals, but we first have them put together a list of uh, board of uh, names of board of directors so they can run some of their goals by them and get some feedback from people that they look up to. Right. My dad has a seat right there, you know, and I run everything by him. And I'm so grateful for that relationship that I have today with my father. And so to be able to do this kind of work, and I know it's therapeutic for him, you know, as he works through his grief with regards to my little brother, because we all grieve differently. Um, I've done a lot of work with my little brother, but it took me two years before I could go visit Dustin up there at the cemetery. Wow. And I remember because it was on my birthday and my my wife now, and I'll talk about her in a minute um, because she's such a huge blessing in my life. but. She said to me, you know, it was my birthday a couple years ago. Um, she says, what do you want to do today? I said, I need to go spend the day with Dustin. So I do all this writing and I've been working on it for a couple of years. Sure. So this is, he, he passed in 2012. So this is 2014. So this is four years ago. And I go up there and, you know, I read to him and I'm sharing all this stuff with him and doing what I can to, you know, go through my amends with him and, and, uh, you know, crying and laughing yeah. and thinking about all the wonderful times we had together. And then all of a sudden this, 
this uh, rainstorm comes in and just starts dumping on me. It's kind of like my little brother <laughs> saying, all right, dude, you've been here. You're good. Get the hell out of here. Go and live move your on. life. Go yeah. live your life now. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it just dumped on me. I was like, all right, I get it, bro. I'm out. I'm right? out of here, yeah. But every time I have, you know, even before I came and sat down with you today, I go up and visit him. Oh, that's when awesome. I have an opportunity to speak or tell his story, um, I want to check my motives and, you know, I want to honor him because he was such a good kid. Sure. He was an athlete, basketball player a brother, a friend, and just, just a really, really good kid. And, and sometimes it's hard for me, Todd, because it very easily could be Dustin sitting here telling his story about and telling his story of his older brother, Mike, that passed away absolutely. from an overdose. I mean, and you, you rolled your car before the, <laughs> yeah. the fun- his yeah. funeral. Yeah. I mean, you could have died then. Yeah, they could. We could have had a double funeral. I mean, right? can you imagine? I mean, and again, when you were saying that, man, it was hit me so hard, uh, Johnny, in the heart when I was imagining your dad when you came walking into the red barn and he's oh. just crying, going, "Are we going to lose you too, yeah. man? I can't do this." Yeah, you know, I can. Oh man, yeah, you can't. I what can't do moment. this as a parent. You what know, a I've just lost one son. I can't lose yeah. another one. And so that was a defining moment in my life where, you know, I firmly believe, you know, sometimes I would say in the past that, you know, it from 2004 to 2012, it took me eight years to get sober. No, it's a split decision. And that's what I tell my guys today. It's a split decision that you make that I made that I'm going to start from this day forward acting with integrity and, and being honest and being accountable. And that's who I am today. I was just too afraid and too scared you know, of, of really accepting, you know, responsibility. And, and then maybe it was fear of failure. Maybe it was those insecurities or the unknown or whatever that is. But if that was a defining moment in my life wow. and really what set us on the course that we're on today with Red Barn Academy. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. I'm just glad I know you, dude. I'm serious. <laughs> Thank I mean you. that. Thank Powerful. you. Powerful. Thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Red Barn Academy. Okay. Um, obviously, this all led up to what you're doing today. You guys are doing amazing things up there. You know, a couple of things that I had researched on it is, you know, you guys live by the principles of hard work, discipline, accountability, integrity, and then the each one, teach one. Exactly. Which I absolutely love. I mean, that's just beautiful there, too. So let's talk about the Red Barn Academy and kind of your guys' philosophy and what you guys are doing today and what might be some future plans or whatever. Perfect. Thank let's talk you. talk about that. Yeah, thanks for asking about that, Todd. Sure. So we go down to Delancey Street. Go down there for what they call, it's their Institute for Social Renewal, their replication training. And so they're big advocates to teach and their kind of outward mindset is to teach other facilities to implement and uh, and the whole therapeutic community model about changing behavior. Right. Um, and so we go down there, I take my dad, I take a couple of board members, I sit down at the, uh, the introduction there because we're going to be there for four or five days. And there's a gentleman sitting right next to me to my right. And I look over at him and, you know, I said, you guys, you're from Utah. He says, yeah, we're from Utah. He says, uh, where are you guys from? I said, I'm from Utah. I brought my team down from Utah. I said, so, you know, tell, tell me a little bit about who you guys are. And he says, well, I'm Joseph Grenny. And I said, oh, <laughs> Joseph Grenny. I'd, I'd read, I had, you know, read his Vital Smarts, you know, sure. crucial conversations and, yeah. you know, some of his books. I said, really? I said, I, I, know, I know Vital Smarts well. And I said, what are you doing here, Joseph? I knew he was a social scientist. Right really looked up to him. He says, well, he says, we're studying this model. He says, we're going to bring a Delancey street to Utah and me just kind of being dumb and naive and (laughs) egotistical. He says, what are you doing here? I said, I want to bring a Delancey street to Utah. So in that moment, we shook hands, we gave each other a hug and said, all right, let's help each other. Let's do it. Let's do it together. Yeah. Now, 
Joseph and his team, I, I mean, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, Todd. They have been such a wonderful big brother, partner, uh, mentor, friend. Um, he's yeah. helped me along the way over the last couple of years when I've started to get off track a little bit. But we forged a friendship and a relationship. In fact, I worked with his daughter, Kara, down in the restaurant. He had his family down there. Right. My dad worked in the automotive shop. We had our CFO down there that worked in the kitchen. And so we started to, for the first time, he was quite a bit further along than us. Right. But we started to study this therapeutic model. And I have to say that as I think about my little brother, Dustin, you know, he'd been to rehab a couple of times. He'd been sure. to jail a couple of times. Right. He didn't need to go back to another rehab. Right. He needed to learn the life skills. He needed to learn how to make his bed. He needed to learn to show up on time. He needed to learn the proper way to cope with life. Yeah. And really, you know, those unhealthy behaviors that had plagued him, you know, they were perpetuated based on the therapy he went and did and you know the the treatment that he went and did and so that really the light went on for me in that moment and so then we started to visit the vulcan academy john vulcan's a good friend sure. of mine yeah we went up there and stayed at his facility up in vancouver and visited seattle and we go down every year to see them down in phoenix and you know and then also obviously you've got the other side academy and then you've got trosa you know, back in right. North Carolina, yeah. Kevin McDonald. And so mm -hmm. my team and I, we went out there about six months ago to study their model. And so we've done a lot of research and development. Awesome. And, you know, but we did have one little hiccup along the way that I'd like to share with you yeah. real quick and the listeners is we were into this process and uh, we weren't exactly sure how to pull this off. And I think, night, you know, being naive and you know ignorance is bliss is really true in this <laughs> sure, in this sure. situation yeah, absolutely but what happened was is i have we have a very active uh, uh board uh, board of directors at red barn and you know one of our board members is this retired district court judge uh, judge Mehmet. he's the one who set up oh, okay. the davis county drug court system oh, yeah. in davis county okay so he says mike he says one day he says you need to take a hard look at working with insurance companies because you're going to alienate those people and you need to look at the biopsychosocial model and i said all right cool we'll, we'll take a look at that yeah. and then i had a mentor who runs um you know first step house uh this mm -hmm. sean mcmillan's a good friend of mine and, yeah. and i went to him for some feedback and he was one of my professors up at the u and i said sean i think we're going to turn this into more of a you know jco accredited you know treatment center and he says all right he says if you do that don't be afraid to go out and hire your replacement i said okay cool <laughs> so i went out and found um this uh this gal that has a phd in animal assisted therapy right. a master's degree i mean her credentials were a mile long she's was hired to come on to be our clinical director we were trying to get paneled with insurance companies uh, i remember meeting with blue cross and blue shield and giving them a tour of the farm i was excited because we have beehives out there right and i oh, was yeah. i was sharing with the gal that came out and visited that uh -huh. hey we've got bees and she goes, uh, no, that's that's not going to work. We're not going to reimburse you for a bee workshop, right? And she goes, the greenhouse. Let's go look at the greenhouse. We walk in the greenhouse, and she sees fertilizers and <laughs> things. She says, well, this doesn't work. And you know, I was I was really felt bad because I was like, this isn't working out. Right. You're going to come tell me how to run Red Barn? I just said that just doesn't sit well with me. And then we met with Medicaid and had the same experience. And you know. Todd, I almost had this nervous breakdown. I had this panic attack. I remember waking up one morning and it was kind of like in Lion King where Mufasa comes back and visits Simba <laughs> and says, you've forgotten who you are. Yeah. And my wife looks at me and says, what's going on? And I said, babe, this just doesn't feel right. Something's not right. And so what do I do? As I do when I find myself in a bind, I pick up the phone, I call Joseph Grenny. 
I said, I said, Mr. Granny, I said, I'm struggling. Um, I'm on this path. Um, I need some feedback. And he says, Mike, he says, no, 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 no. Stay the course. I will help you. We right. will help you here at the other side Academy. We don't need another treatment center here in Utah. We, and he was cool. He says, we've got wonderful treatment centers here. He says, we need more therapeutic communities. He says, call Dave DeRocher, move into the other side Academy, live there for a week and we'll teach you everything that we can teach you. Wow. So I grabbed my dad again and my CFO. They only lasted about two days there. I did last the full week. Did you make it away? I okay. made the full week. They played the games did with me. Did you get me. any haircuts? Oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I walked around entitled. I, I know Dave told them to light me up over there, and they certainly did. I wore my watch when I wasn't supposed to. One day I didn't shave, and I got community service for that. Right. Um, it, was, it was absolutely unbelievable. And so that really brought us back to where this path that we're on today, right. which, uh, you know, is we are a true therapeutic yeah. community. We are, you know, minimum stay two year program. And anytime that I get off track, I go spend time with, you know, the Delancey streets of the world, right. the other side Academy, um, Trosa, um, we're close, like I said, with the Vulcan Academy and, you know, we've made our mistakes along the way. Initially, when we started, we were only going to be a one year program. And to be honest with you and the listeners, it was because of my own insecurities. I thought no one's going to want to commit to this for two years. Right. You know, and we've had students that have been with because this. Because you wouldn't have. Exactly. Yeah, back then you were like, there's no way I'm no doing exactly. You're crazy. You know, I couldn't <laughs> do anything for six months, let alone for a year or yeah, two really years. 30 days, I'm out of exactly. here. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. And sure. so we've even brought people on to, Re to the Red Barn Academy um, underneath the commitment of just mm -hmm. one year. And so we've had them fulfill those commitments. Uh, we have our house manager is a staff member now. He fulfilled his commitment to the state, to the criminal justice system, and now he's working at Red Barn and continuing on that path. But everyone else at Red Barn, we've got 18 students there now. Every one of them there now is with that at minimum stay of a two-year commitment. Wow, that's awesome. So we do play games. Just like, you know, Dr. DeLeon in his book, The Therapeutic Community. In fact, right. I had an opportunity to meet him and, and work with him a little bit. But we do the games. We do haircuts. We do pull-ups. Uh, we have right. a morning meeting. We have a right. social enterprise where we've got a business department. We've got, or I'm sorry, a moving department. Yeah. Um, my guys are out shoveling snow today, landscaping. We had a move today up in Park City. And the Other Side Academy has supported us all along the way, right. helping us out all yeah. along the way. What a great organization to uh, be involved with. And then, you know, Joseph Granny, I mean, salt of the earth, yeah. an amazing individual. Yeah, I was just on and, the phone with Tim Stay this morning because yeah. I was lost on something else. I said, Tim, I need your help. He's all right. That's what we're here to do. Dude. And that outward mindset. And Dude, it's amazing. It, it, it is. And, that, and now I want to do that. We want Red Barn Academy to be a model to where anyone that wants to come and visit and, you know, you need our policies and procedures you need our, our curriculum these are this is what we've learned from you know our mistakes um it's been it's been a huge huge blessing here in our community because you know we get um at least 15 to 20 letters a week from the different jails and prisons here in utah um, tomorrow i'm headed down to utah county jail uh, to do five interviews and so i'm the one wow. who gets to go out now awesome. and, and do the interviews and you know, and Dave and Alan have both helped me a little bit with that. But for the most part, they've said, Mike, go figure it out. You're fine. You can do it. <laughs> I mean, and just so you know, sure. when we first started, I they had only been open for a year. And I said, I said, will you guys come out here? We'll call this the Other Side Academy at Red Barn. And I brought their whole team out. And they walked around and they looked around and they said, Mike, 
you got this, bro. You can do this. Yeah. You don't they need, actually, you don't need our you don't need us. You, yeah. That's what they say. You don't need yeah. us. We'll support you. We'll help you out. And to their credit, they have fulfilled that. And they just Amazing. said, you got this, do this, you can do this. And so, you know, like I said, you know, we, we have capacity at Red Barn Academy for 44 men. We're a men's only facility, okay. 18 and older. Okay. Our mission statement um, talks about families. Our next uh, facility that we will be building here next year will be a women and children's facility. Right on. So we'll be able to work with the families. Right um, our goal, and I feel like our sweet spot, Todd, is about 150 to maybe 175 students out there at the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, the nonprofit, because it is important for you and the listeners to know that yeah. we are you yep. know, a, a 501c3, and it doesn't cost anything to come to Red Barn Academy. It's a pretty intense interview process and screening process that we go through. And, and people will say, Mike, you're a jerk. And I say, <laughs> it's not that I'm being a jerk. It's that I want to make sure that this is appropriate for you. The last thing you need to do is come to Red Barn and fail. Right. You've already got enough failures. And so we so turn. It's like, how bad do you want this? Exactly. Are you really willing to commit to this? And that's the yeah. Johnny Farmer. That's the alter ego that I've created. When I go down to the jails <laughs> and interview these guys, I take it to a whole nother level. I probably use too many F words and colorful language, but I really, and this is what I've learned from, you know, Dave over at the other side Academy is, is I want to see some emotion. I want to elicit some, you know, I, I want to see that there's some, you know, there, there's some desire there to really change. Don't give me the same bullshit story that I hear every single time. Um, you know, I really, I want to see it and feel it. Right. And so, you know, that, that's, that's really where we're at today. But the thing that's really exciting, I think about uh, red barn Academy is it is a farm setting. We have alpacas, we have chickens, we have (laughs) ducks, we have dogs, we have cats. And what I found Todd is every student that comes into red barn. Now they have the capacity to be honest, but they're not, able to actually um, live by integrity when they first get there. I know that. They know that I know that. They don't have this outward mindset. They're not thinking about other people. So we assign them an animal. And what I found is, is they'll be more service oriented towards an animal than they will another human being because Isn't that fascinating? they're worried about that. You're going to let them down or I'm going to let them down because they haven't been able to trust humans in the past. And now they start serving this animal they start feeding the dog and walking the dog and caring for the dog and now they're thinking about something else other than themselves and then you see that paradigm shift happen and this social i mean i hate to say this but it really is a social experiment and i love the work that i do because i get to see the transformation right there unfold and the stuff that i've seen i mean you couldn't make it up yeah, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. We are writing a book about uh, Red Barn Academy. It's called love the Red it. Barn Academy Way, and uh, love it. And 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 we will definitely share that and share our experiences. But to watch these men shift from serving these animals then to serving their brothers and developing this connection, and really this these relationships with depth and weight that only comes from a therapeutic community of confrontation of calling each other out. I've told every man that comes into Red Barn, my job is to poke and prod at you all day, every single day. It's a pressure cooker up there. I want you to be angry. I want you to be sad. I want you to be happy, joyful. I want you to experience every range of emotion and not get high. So when you leave Red Barn, you can say, okay, I can do this. I don't have to go get high. I can write in my journal. I can meditate. I can sit in it and realize that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Those life skills that are taught there in that therapeutic community setting, 
that are a byproduct of a three-hour game where there's tears and there's people that are upset and breaking stuff and punching holes in walls. I mean, that's where it gets to. But at the end of the day, they feel safe because that's the commitment that I've made to them right. is you're going to have a safe place to live. Your needs will be right. met, but you've got to trust the process. For you've sure. got to trust it. Love it. Wow. Amazing. So amazing. That's so neat. And what, what I love about your story, too, is how much effort and research you've put into this. I mean, you've traveled the country researching every little thing you could to make yours where it is today. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing, man. Love it. Well, thank you. What an amazing story. Seriously, like amazing story, amazing life. You're doing amazing things. It's got to feel good to be Johnny Farmer today. <laughs> I mean, it's got to feel pretty good. Well, and, and the thing that I, you know, that I really wanted to touch on before we wrap up is the blessings that I've received mm-hmm. that sometimes I feel like I, I, I don't merit or deserve, um, you know, because, you know, the grace that God has shown on me, my family, um, you know, I have a wife today that is, she's, she's my rock. She's, she's the foundation that, you know, when my life gets out of control, she's steady. She's, um, you know, she's very, very, um, caring, but she provides me the feedback because I get these blinders on and I get off course because I'm still crazy. I mean, I'm still, I'm a recovered drug and you know drug addict thank you very much for saying that but i am recovered recovered. i'm recovered from that hopeless state of mind that's not who i am today but i'm an adrenaline junkie i still you know i do these crazy obstacle course events and i do ironmans and triathlons and things like that and you know the other day i was losing my mind and my wife has this ability to bring me back and and hold me accountable (laughs) and she said what you know what the hell's going on with you it was on a holiday and i (laughs) I, part of my routine is because I'm all about developing discipline and, and a routine. Uh-huh. It was my day to be in the pool to swim and I couldn't find a pool that was open. I was losing my mind. And she's like, you know, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And I looked at her because I'm sarcastic and that's one of my character defects. I said, well, shit, babe, at least I'm not out looking for a liquor store. or I'm not out trying to find drugs anymore, right. but I still have this mind that yeah. still gets a little out of control. Sure. All or I still get insecure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still concerned about what you think about me and how I look. That's a very common thread, I believe, with the people mm-hmm. that, you know, if I can just look good, then I can feel good. Um, you know, so I suffer from that delusion yeah, today. Sure. And and so I have to check myself on that. And my wife plays the game with me. My wife is my tribe leader. My wife is the one who pulls me up. And now we have this little boy, Maverick, who has absolutely changed my life. Yeah. And... Yeah. Sorry. No, no, you're good. But, you know, he never has to see his dad in jail. Yeah. He never has to see his dad drunk. You know, he never has to see his dad hit his mom. And, you know, that's the message that I'm trying to share with my guys. Right. Is these relationships, the life that I have today that is based on integrity it's based on discipline, love, which I believe is the sacrifice of my time and you know what I do, it, you know, my energy to to serve other people. Um, you know, I had no idea what I was missing out on. Um, you know, and and I've got this beautiful family today, and you know this little kid is so excited to see me on a daily basis, and uh, you know he's my why today. 
You know, I get up in the morning, you know, changed his diaper this morning at, at 2 a.m. He peed on me. He didn't pee in my mouth. So that's the silver lining. He just peed on my arm. Right. Yeah. And so that for me is is the byproduct of the work that we do. The work that you do is my relationships and yeah. the family that I get to come home to on a daily basis. And this is what I want for my guys. Yeah. And I tell my students at Red Barn, don't leave before the miracle happens. Right. And then when the miracle happens, stick around yep. and share that with someone share else. It, baby. Yeah, because that's it. that's where I'm at today is I, I feel so blessed and I'm so full of gratitude. And, and to honestly, Todd, I feel like I'm living the dream. Yeah, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, man, um, what an amazing uh, story you have. And I'm so glad that you are doing what you're doing and I'm grateful that I know you. And I really Thank meant you. what I said that. Um, you know, any friend of Dave's is a friend of mine, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, right. I'm glad we all kind of rub shoulders now, which is mm -hmm. wonderful. And I can't wait to come up to the Red Barn and uh, have an opportunity to speak to your students. Um, let's, a couple things, and okay. then we'll wrap things up. Okay. If you could give a challenge to our listeners, um, a lot of our listeners probably have a son or a daughter who's struggling, or they might be struggling themselves. What advice or what challenge could you give uh, our listeners today that uh, would be helpful for them. I love that, um, Todd, and thanks um, for asking me to do this. You know, never give up. Um, the hope that you know, as I as I speak to families, um, you know, mm -hmm. I look at my life and I look at the people that I my students that I work with today, and change is possible, and changing behaviors is possible. Um, it requires a lot of hard work and a lot of effort, but to never give up. The best thing that I can do for my family is stay healthy. Right. I have to do me. I have to be spiritually fit. I have to meditate, write in my journal. Um, I, I have to have integrity in my life. And, you know, I believe in attraction rather than promotion. And so right. I don't want to go out and say, you need to do this. I'm here to take your inventory. I say to people, if you want what I have, just do what I do. You know, there's not a magic formula. There's not an algorithm sure. or something. And sure. I'll share that with you. And I'm happy to share that with families. And the one thing that's a little different about us than the other therapeutic communities mm -hmm. is that we are going to build a family program around this. Most therapeutic communities traditionally don't have a family program because yeah. it's too difficult. Right. We're cocky enough or confident <laughs> enough that we believe we're here in our it. community that yeah. we're going to do it. And it's going to take some time and it's going to be collaborating with other TCs that are out there. Um, but for the families, it's to obviously never give up. Reach out. The one thing about Red Barn Academy, Todd, is, is not everyone's appropriate to come to Red Barn. But I would love to leave my contact information yes. with the listeners because 90% of the people that reach out to us Hey, you need to contact Todd up at Wasatch. You need to go check with this person or that. We're constantly helping them get to where they need to go. I call right. it a warm handoff. Sure. Not everyone's going to be appropriate for a TC model. And so I really pride myself in mm -hmm. being educated enough, right. spending enough time. People will come down and we will actually kind of conduct interventions at Red Barn. It's a softer approach. I tell them my story. Right. I relate with them. And then I just say, hey, listen, let me help you get to where you need to be. Most of the time they come to Red Barn and think they want to check in. 90% of the time I refer them out somewhere else. Right. So never, never give up. But the one challenge that. that I would give the listeners is what I've done with my students um, at Red Barn Academy is to write a personal mission statement. 
We check in, and we just started doing this here in the new year uh, with the students. We do a morning meeting every morning at 645. Mm -hmm. I mean, my students are up every single day at 5 a.m. If they're up at 501, they've got two hours of community service. That's (laughs) holidays and weekends, just to give you an idea. You know, our therapy obviously is work therapy. If you're pissed, go dig a hole. If you're still pissed, then you're going to fill the hole back in. You're going to get to a point to where you're not going to have enough energy to be pissed anymore. Right, right. right. When you're awake, you're working. I mean, I could go into that for for hours, but (laughs) this idea of developing and changing the narrative, we're the ones who wrote the narrative. We need to change the dialogue in our head. And if that's just act as if until it becomes a habit over and over and over again, that's what we do with our personal mission statement. Sure. So, you know, for example, for me, my mission statement is to be the world's best husband, father, and friend through integrity, discipline, and service to others. And I say that every single day Mm -hmm. and we check in with the students to write that and to rewrite that and, and and until you actually believe that and internalize that. And I know it's tough in the beginning, but that would be my challenge is, is that if each one of us had our own personal mission statements and we said that, and we shared that with other people, that's what, you know, that's what I've encouraged my students to do today. And the luxury we have Todd, is they'll go to work today. They're applying their mission statement today. Then we come back and we do an evening meeting and we check in and we say, Todd, how were you able to apply your mission statement today out there, you know, shoveling snow today? Or you're out there moving that family into their new home, which is a huge life event. Right. And then they talk about how they were able to apply that or how they fell short. And, you know, we're going to work on it again tomorrow. I love that. You know, one of our deals we're doing is this. I've got my sticky bird shirt on right here. We're building, you know, a, a restaurant right there next to Red Barn that that's going to be a restaurant that the students are going to build, the students are going to work in. And so when people say, how do we support Red Barn? It's going to be come down and eat our chicken. Come hear our story. <laughs> right. We're going to put storyboards up to highlight the students and their successes and you know where they came from and where they're at today. And you know we'll have cheesy tagline like, you know, give... Uh, addiction a licking eat more chicken or you know save the world from addiction eat more chicken I love and it. so that's part of it. our uh, social enterprises and the revenues that come off of sticky bird right will come back and help us continue to build out our campus because see we still have to build the women and children's housing yeah, right. we got to build the graduate housing so we're always looking for these opportunities where we can teach a life skill right generate the revenue so it comes back in because it's important for the listeners to know is we don't take any tax dollars, right? Federal or state. And then uh, we don't work with insurance companies, insurance money. Yeah. So we really depend on these social enterprises and sticky bird. It's going to be a fun, fun menu. We'll actually break ground on that in about 60 days. That's cool. And the students will help us build it and they'll help us staff it. And they're, it's going to be their story. So it's going to give us that platform to really talk about that. And and I'll, I'll, I'm here to go on record to say there's going to be multiple sticky birds that you'll see here in the United States. I I'm, I'm with you and I want to be there on the grand opening. So please let me know. For sure. We'll do a podcast out there. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. okay, let's plan it. We, okay. You heard it here first. We will do. Let's do a, a mobile podcast on here when we open. When you open up Sticky Bird, it'll okay. be live, and we'll just we'll cool. get we'll get the news. We'll get everybody, dude. It'll awesome. be amazing. Okay. Deal. Wow. Wow. Well, if someone does want to reach out to you and they want to to ask you a question, or if they want to you know get in touch with uh, the Red Barn Academy, how would they do that? Best way to do that, Todd, is um, my email address is Mike at redbarnacademy.org. Okay. I'm very, very accessible through email. Uh, the website is www.redbarnfarms. So it's redbarnfarms is plural.org. Or my cell phone number is 
837-0706. There you go, man. So I'm happy to help out any anyone any way that we can. You just gave your number to 16,000 people. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. I need to be more of service. <laughs> You're going to be busy. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. at the end of the yeah, day, I if it. I know that service work is so important, who am I to deprive you of doing service work for me? Sure. So I appreciate you letting me be here today and for oh. all the work you do oh, this is a you. real honor to be on your oh. podcast and thank you, i mean man. you're a rock star here bro <laughs> in our community oh wow so i'm happy to just be on, yeah. on for the ride well thank you man and what i mean truly a blessing listeners i mean you man what a treat we had today thank you hearing your story and what you've been through how you've overcome it how you live your life today man you truly are a light of in this world that we all need to follow Thank you. And I just can't thank you enough and keep doing the great work you're doing. So there you go, listeners. Wow, what a great challenge. What a great story. And what a what a great model for us to follow is uh, Johnny Farmer's life. Let's all, you know, you know, when I hear things like this, this is the honest truth. It, as you're sharing your story and what you've been through and how you've overcome it, I'm in my head over here going, I need to be better. <laughs> thank you. I mean that. Thank you. And so, and I'm sure our listeners will feel the same way. So thank you so much. And I feel so blessed. You know, I've had such amazing guests on, and it just makes me want to be a better person. So I'm grateful to rub shoulders with you, my friend. Thank you. I mean that a lot. So there you go, listeners. Share this with anyone you know that might be struggling, who has a having a hard time, they're not sure where to turn. Share him Johnny's story. Get this out to as many people as you can. Thank you for uh, all your support and allowing us to trend on iTunes. Again, we're sponsored by Veracity Networks. They're an amazing telecom communications company, and they have they love what we're doing. Uh, they're going to love, obviously, Johnny, what he's doing as, as well. And I'm just so very, very blessed and fortunate. I'm glad to be clean. I'm glad to be recovered sitting here with Johnny as well, who is also recovered. What a beautiful thing, and, and that can be you as well. And so thank you so much, and until uh, next time. All right, love you, bro. Okay, thank love you. Me, man. Thank you so much.